Welcome to the Live Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kleber. And if you're a first-time listener to the podcast, this podcast is about sharing stories of those with lived experience on a large range of mental illness topics and also where mental illness has affected those in the family unit. You can also check out the website, livedexperiencepodcast.com. And if you do like what you hear, please make sure you leave a review or drop me a follow on social media. And if you're interested in sharing your story of lived experience, please make sure you reach out to me via livedexperiencepodcast.com on the contact form, or you can check out the show notes for contact details. And I look forward to hearing from you soon, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So welcome back to the Live Experience Podcast, and I hope you had a really good Easter break with your friends and family, and it was a safe one as well. And we're back into the swing of things already, and can you believe it's already April? It's gone so quick, so um, the end of the year will be around before you know it. And on today's episode, I have Kerry Atherton. Now, Kerry Atherton, we connected over LinkedIn. I can't remember how exactly it was. Um, but I think it was regarding, I think it was regarding her book, which she just released, which was Stories of Hope. I think it's her third book. And, um, we'll talk about that. And I offered to come on the podcast. And Carrie's story is a fantastic one, um, as it touches over multiple things. And it's really, really relevant to this podcast, you know, things about trauma, addictions, recovery, um, talking about suicide. So a trigger warning for anyone. Make sure you seek help if that brings up any feelings of that for you. Um, but she goes right into it. And the impressive thing about Kerry is how she changed her life directory at a really young age uh, to go and work in this sort of area and help other people. And she's been doing it for a very long, long time now. And she's also an author as well. And she has a forum for all these different things, stories of hope. And I've got all those links in the show notes, but really check them out. Really, really impressive individual, um, really relatable as well. And a lot of the stuff we talk about, you know, it might sound like um, it's not commonplace, but as we all know, this stuff is commonplace. And for Kerry to share it as openly as she does is really impressive and something we need more of. So hope you enjoyed today's episode with Kerry. And if you do enjoy it, make sure you share it to a friend or leave a podcast review takes you five seconds and it really helps me out a lot but that's enough of me talking and i hope you enjoy the episode and um until next episode have a good week carrie atherton thank you very much for joining me today on the lived experience and um you've you've just come out with a new book which is stories of hope volume three and had a book launch um in multiple cities as well but maybe trying to give people a bit of a background about who you are and 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 how you're involved in, in mental health thanks joel uh so i've been a counselor for around 15 years and um, entailed with that also ha- I'm a lived experience speaker and also I'm a mental health first aid trainer. And around six years ago, I started a Stories of Hope movement, which was events, local events for people in the community that were going through hard times so that they could find hope and also know that they're not alone in their pain. And out of that has come three books. And how did and how and when you say lived experience speaker as well, what is your lived experience in um in in the field? Uh, well, I've I've got a lot of lived experience. Um, you know, I've got a lot of lived experience, especially around the top three mental health conditions, which is uh, anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, and substance abuse. And I've suffered from a lot of depression through my life, uh, a lot of anxiety, especially in the later years. And I was a pill addict and an alcoholic. And at 18, uh, I came to a crossroad in my life where it was really death or sobriety. And I chose sobriety and I've been sober and clean ever since that day. How did you pull yourself out of that? Because that is such an early age, like, you know, not many people, you know, might not do it to like they're 50 or something, whereas you, you were able to do it at 18. How, how are you able to be mature enough to do it or what happened around that time? I guess I just became that desperate. 
uh, I'd grown up in a home with two alcoholic parents and my dad got sober before I was born because he saw both his parents die from alcoholism uh, before in their 40s and 50s. And my mum was an alcoholic and also had uh, bipolar. And so growing up very aware of problems in the family, um, at 10 I had a breakdown and my Parents took me to a psychiatrist who put me on anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants. And I guess Alcoholics Anonymous was always part of our life as a family. My dad got sober there and went there um, from before I was born. And my mum got sober when I was 12 years old. And they actually took me to Alateen, which is for children of alcoholics. So I was aware that there was a place for help. Uh, but at the time that I was introduced to this, and also my dad took me along to some meetings when I was 15 and 16, because three months after I started drinking, everybody connected to my family told me I was an alcoholic. And I, I couldn't believe it that at 15, I could be an alcoholic. But I went a along to a couple of meetings and um, I, I knew that the program was there. But it wasn't for me. I didn't think I was an alcoholic and I didn't think my life was that bad. And it really took three years. You know, everyone has to come to a rock bottom before they'll make a change in their life. And my rock bottom came at 18 after, you know, I went through some very, very difficult situations in relation to my addiction. And I hated the person that I was. I hated the things that had happened to me. And I just didn't want to be alive anymore. Um, thanks for sharing that. Very powerful. And you mentioned that your mum had bipolar disorder. So this is something I can relate to because my mum had bipolar disorder one. So I grew up with that. But she couldn't drink because if she drank, she it was not good for her mental health. So how was it with your mum being an alcoholic plus having bipolar disorder? I could imagine. Um, how, how, how was that? It was very explosive. Uh, she... You know, I, I can. She she was a fantastic mum. Like she was a high functioning alcoholic at the time. Um, she made all our clothes. She worked. She she did everything, but she would have these explosive outbursts um, where she'd just go nuts. You know, and smash pans for hours and scream and take off, leave the house. We didn't know where where she was going. Or I, you know, I often thought that I wasn't going to see her again. Um, and when I was seven, I actually witnessed her being electrocuted and she came back to life, but that was just a horrific and traumatic experience for me. Um, but she used to drink at night, so my memories, I, I can't really remember her seeing her actually drunk, but I remember just so many nights where I would say to Dad as a little kid, you know, where's Mum? And he would say, oh, she's, she's not well or she's got a headache. And now I know she was in the bedroom drunk and I didn't really, you know, see much of her at night until I was about 12 and when things really changed. But she, it was all, it was like living on eggshells, treading on eggshells and you could never predict the atmosphere. I didn't know when she was going to be good and when she wasn't going to be good. And I grew up very, very insecure as a result of that. And how did you deal with it? Did you have any strategies when you were growing up? Was it something you just tried to avoid or you knew not to go into the room maybe at these certain times or how did you, how did you manage your own, 
your own life? Well, I was pretty close, very, very close to my dad and we were both musicians. My dad got me piano lessons at seven. So most of my early childhood, you know, my bonding was probably with my dad and we would, you know, jam. He would play, he was a jazz saxophone player and I was a piano player and we played music together all the time. Uh, he told me about the hard stuff in life um, and I had two brothers. Uh, I don't I, I don't know, you know, a lot of my childhood is a blur because also being medicated at the age of 10, uh, I really started to rely on that medication to just dumb me out and, and dull life out. So I started to tell my parents that I kept losing my tablets because I was taking more and more to try and I was also being bullied at school mm-hmm. and I just felt like... I was terrified after an experience that happened to me when I was nine also, and it was a a situation, something that happened to me when I was on holidays, but the person knew where we lived. And most people have a safe haven at school or at home, but I just didn't feel like I had one anywhere. And I just lived, I was terrified. Uh, We, I have a lot of happy memories of, you know, my childhood and my parents um, and my mum was never like physically abusive towards me or anything, but there was a lot of times where I would do the wrong thing and she wouldn't speak to me for a few days, you know, and and that just that not knowing how to ever make that right was really heartbreaking as a kid. Did anyone explain to you what bipolar was or go over to match health and helping you understand the condition? No. And my mum was under the care of the psychiatrist. My dad was under the care of the psychiatrist. Uh, so I guess I just back then in my young years thought, well, maybe this psychiatrist is just helping all of us. But back then it was called manic depression. Yep. And so um, I knew that term, that my mum had manic depression, but I didn't. Now I know that to be bipolar. And um, she didn't so much have extreme highs, Um but she did have highs where she would be very high functioning, but the lows were a lot. Yeah. Was she bipolar two then? Maybe because there's bipolar one, two, and there's um another I think two's more flat and then one's more more manic. Yeah, I think she was definitely the more flat. Yeah. Uh and it was never diagnosed as that back then. Yep. But only that I know that now. Um I I know that that's, you know, what she suffered from. And did the psychiatrist ever involve, or that, was he treating you as well? Or did you he involve you much in your your mum's to to tell you what's going on, or not really? Or? No, it was more to deal with my fears that I was going through, yep. and the anxiety that I was going through. And I said to my parents um, when I, I don't know if it was after I'd stopped drinking or about why well, just send me to a psychiatrist. And they actually said if we didn't send you there, we thought you would end your life. And how was that hearing that from your parents? It was real a real um it was a real shock. Um and I guess I'll just give a trigger warning here, you know, that that's really talking about suicide. Um I knew there was many days in my teenage years that I wanted to um I thought about not waking up in the morning. That the thought of waking up in the morning for me was terrifying. And I often used to wish that I'd go to sleep and not wake up. And then when I'd wake up, I had this gut-wrenching despair about 
going through another day. Um, but the psychiatrist was, as far as I knew, was helping me with my problems, but we never really actually had like family interventions. The school know much about it to help you because um, the bullying at school thing, I've heard a few times when I've done these interviews and um, bullying, at, bullying at school seems to be a common theme, unfortunately. Um, did the school help you in any way or was there no, nothing from there in? No. No. Nothing there. And actually, when I reported a girl that had one of the girls that had been bullying me, um, it was turned around on me. And the teacher, I think she, I was in second or third class at the time, the teacher had had a nervous breakdown also. And she basically made a spectacle of me and made me stand with my hands on my head, um, with my back to the class many, many of the class times. And she caned me and she used to call me Catfisher. My name, my my surname was Fisher, and the kids used to call me Fatfisher because I had a weight problem as well. And that was another thing that was so humiliating was standing there with my back to the class, mm-hmm. knowing that I had a big weight problem. And from that, um, and the treatment of other children, I developed this shocking fear of public humiliation, which mm-hmm. which led me to wear many masks. Yes, it's, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yes, pretty bad, you know, abuse that that that, that a teacher. Would, you know, imagine, imagine someone doing that now. But um, yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that. But but what do you think would it, what do you, what do you think Carrie would have helped you? Like I know it's a bit different now, but back then, what do you think would have helped you? Do you think um being involved in with a psychiatrist more regards to what was going on with your mom, or do you think having some sort of external mentor? What do you think could have actually helped you or the school actually taking the bullying seriously? What do you think would have helped you or in that situation? Gee, it's it's really hard to know. It's really hard to know because I know these days now we've got school counsellors, guidance officers, chaplains. Um, I, I was at a Catholic school and as far as I knew, there was no support. Mm. I didn't know where to go for support. I'd go home and I'd tell my parents but I'd guess that there was so much going on in our family life that it was just another thing, you know. So I, I hear this often, and and I actually have been a school chaplain for six years, and I hear this often from kids that when their parents are struggling, they actually don't want to disclose that to their parents because they feel like their parents have got enough going on and they just mm. don't want to make things worse. Uh, so... But I, but I had a piano teacher at school and I had weekly piano lessons and I guess that was a little bit of, that was just somebody that I felt cared for me in that time. And it, it sounds ridiculous, but having a piano lesson, a piano teacher made just such a massive difference in my life because it was just one, one space where I felt like I was safe for an hour. Yeah, but also I agree with you. I used to do a guitar a lot, and that guitar was my escape. And I think you get the self-esteem from you're progressing on piano and learning things, and you're getting positive reinforcement from the teacher. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful, a powerful thing as an instrument um, in these sort of situations. Yeah, and at high and in high school too, the bullying got much worse. And I even had a teacher um, there present in the class when the whole class was bullying me, and it took one student stood up and told all the girls off in front of everyone, but the teacher did nothing. And 
there was no support there either. So um, school was a terrifying place for me, as was getting on the bus in the morning to go to school. And I think that was where the despair set in when I'd wake up every morning and I think I don't know how I'm going to get through another day today. Well, the only place you can escape is your sleep. And then, let's say if you have nightmares or something, you know, 24 hours, I had this conversation with a few people before, especially the bullying part. That's a really big impact on people. And, um, you know, credit to you for getting through it because some people don't. Thank you, Joel. And I want to talk to you now about your trauma counsellor. Now, I think this is an important thing because how did you, obviously you've had a lot of trauma back in your life as well. So why did you go into that field and maybe to talk about that? Because I think you'll probably, you'll be able to, you're way more experienced and an expert on this than me, but I think a lot of stuff that goes on in people's life currently, let's say if it's addictions or whatever, it can be all majority of it linked to traumas, right? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that and, and, and your expertise in that area? Yeah. And well, I, I counsel a lot of people that are battling with addictions and obviously because I've been in the AA program for, you know, 40 years now, I have not met a person suffering with addictions that hasn't had trauma in their life. And but the the difficult thing with addictions is that it also causes trauma, yet we use it to escape from trauma. So it's a really, really vicious, vicious cycle. Uh, i've I've had probably suffered so so many different traumas in my life. So there was the uh, Witnessing my mum being electrocuted, so witnessing the the terrible event. Um, when I was nine, I was uh, sexually molested by a pedophile on holidays. So the sexual abuse, I've been in domestic violence situation uh, and basically have lived my life in the freeze. Um, so we hear of fight or flight um, and then there's freeze or appease. So I've lived my life in the freeze position and also in the appeasing, so the people-pleasing. That was a place of safety for me. Um, but trauma can happen to anyone, but it's it's whether it's dealt with or not uh, in a significant frame time as to whether it's going to go on and have a big effect. You know, people can have a small T. We, we talk about the big T's and the small T's. Um, and the small T traumas um, happen to us all every day. But for the person that doesn't deal with that or hasn't had any other trauma in their life, that can actually have a massive impact. Uh, lots of clients that come to me now are people probably in their, you know, mid-40s. And every single one of those people come to me uh, and they don't know it at the time, but it's unresolved childhood trauma. And eventually that trauma, it's, it, go, it stays in here unless it's dealt with and it will come out. It's just a matter of how, where and when. And so I guess my encouragement to anybody that feels like they're still, they still have triggers or are still suffering from a trauma that they experienced is to get it out somehow, whether that's journaling, talking to someone, speaking about it, writing about it. Well, that's journaling, isn't it? <laughs> mm. uh, getting help, professional help to deal with that because otherwise um, you stay trapped in the fight or flight or freeze and uh, we know with fight or flight cortisol just runs rampant through your body and then causes health problems. And so, yeah, it's, re it's really uh, recognising 
and and people will know that there's a problem because they will be triggered on the same things over and over again. Yeah. And it's it's getting someone to help you identify and link that back to okay, well, what's triggering me and where has that come from? And how do you treat the root trauma or what are some methods that you would go for? So for example, you sit down with someone and you go through it and they disclose something to you. How would you obviously it's the case by case dependent, but how what what are some things that 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 people can do or how would you can you treat it? Well, I uh, use cognitive behavior therapy. And that's really good with helping people to identify the physical emotion attached to when they are triggered. And to often that's the first sign in our body that something's not right. Uh, and then going back and, and tracing, tracing that thought, tracing, okay, what, why am I triggered? Tracing the core beliefs that they've held over their whole life, which we hold to protect ourselves, but they're false beliefs that end up eating us. And then teaching and, and helping them to reframe um, a new story or a perception that aids them in moving forward in a positive way. Okay, so the core beliefs things are big things. Um, like, like you had a trauma, let's say, when you were younger as a kid, and then from then on, as you said, people please or whatever, and you go through your whole life and you get to 35 and 40 and maybe you're not where you are. How How is the process to change that core belief? Is it something where it's just, um, is it discussed or is there other things or how, how would you do it? Well, first it's helping the client to identify what are your self-defeating beliefs because a lot of people don't realise. I mean, you'll get a classic example of somebody, it's a kid at school, that somebody says something about their mother or father and they go and punch a kid in the head. Mm. Their core belief is you, you never say anything about my family. And so it's it's getting people to actually lock, understand or f- I help them find what their core beliefs are and then bring them, it's like bringing the lie out of the cupboard type thing and saying, okay, well, how has this been serving you? You know, and pain is the greatest motivator of change. And often they come to me because the pain's become so great in their life. And anger and sadness and fear are the three emotions that are really linked to these self-defeating beliefs. And it's getting them to realize, okay, when do I feel the most anger? When do I feel the most sadness? When do I feel the most fearful? And what thoughts are connected to that? Um, And it sounds like a long time, but it takes 21 days to start to form a new thought. It takes an extra 21 days to while forming keeping on forming a new thought to start to eradicate the old thought and another 21 days to actually rewire the pathway and get rid of that old thought totally. So 63 days. And when I say that to clients, 63 days of practicing their new belief whenever they're triggered and they have that old tape playing, saying the new belief, it takes 63 days of practicing that. And when I say that to them, they're like, oh, 63 days. And I'm like, well, you think about it, for 40 years, you've been thinking the same way. That That's mm. just not going to change just like that. You need to develop a new thought and practice it and until that becomes your new normal way of thinking about that situation. And what changes have you seen in people? How dramatic have you seen someone's life improve from coming to you to practicing what you've told them to actually 
where they are now? Oh, miraculous. Like I, I just, I had so many great reports from clients and things that used to bother them, you know, that I guess the thing is if the emotional response is over five out of 10 in a negative way, that's a level of concern. So with, you know, all my clients, I've been able to bring their emotional response when they're triggered right down to maybe a three out of 10. And a three out of 10 is something that they'll probably give it a bit of a thought of the old way and then I'm not, not, that that's not even bothering me anymore. Mm. So a lot of freedom, you know, for parents too that, um, you know, I've counselled a few men and women that have stayed in, especially women that have stayed in abusive relationships with their partners and then their children, as their children are growing up, are really trying to hold them accountable for the fact, well, why didn't you leave? And the guilt, the guilt that those parents have felt around that uh, is something that they've come to me with. And one lady after three sessions had her, the guilt just totally left because she was able to find a new perception that helped her to think about that in a different way. Mm. And with the, um, and with, do you think that basically most people's problems can be linked back to a trauma or to a childhood trauma? Is that from your experience or? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we all live through, you know, I don't know, millions of events in our life and we have 80,000 thoughts a day. Uh, and trauma, as I said, if it's not dealt with, it stays in here, it stays in us. And so uh, you often get, you know, you, people that that will have death in the family or something like that. Mm. And they don't feel that they can really grieve properly for some reason. Maybe it's because they have to keep up and operating. So our, our mind doesn't let us um, actually grieve properly unless we feel like we're in a secure enough state to do that. And so for that reason, uh, you'll get people that maybe may have a loss and then they don't deal with the grief properly. And then they have another loss and then they just collapse. Mm. And it's like vicarious trauma. They haven't dealt with the first one. So then when they have the second one, it hits them like a ton of bricks. And, I, I mean, I know this to be true myself. My um, Just after I moved up to the Sunshine Coast, my mum got diagnosed with cancer. And then her brother who was uh, her half-brother that was six years older than me passed away suddenly and a year later my mum died. And then my um, cousin died in a motorbike accident four months after that. And in the middle of that, my daughter got married and she fell pregnant. And then my grandmother died and all my aunties and uncles. My dad was diagnosed with last stages of emphysema, had a massive car accident. My husband had a breakdown. I actually had to leave work because of workplace bullying. So all those traumas on top of each other, I didn't actually, It was. I felt like I was out in a king tide just treading water and every time I'd just try and take one stroke of the arm to get back to shore, I would be smashed with another wave and I felt like I was drowning out in the ocean. And that's what unresolved trauma does to people. And how did you deal with that? So you would have had your experience, was that when all that stuff was happening, were you experiencing trauma counselling yourself and was this prior to that or? No, well, I started having counselling myself and 
in the and then and in the middle of all that, I was actually working as a counsellor. Okay, how how was that? Well, sometimes it was therapeutic. Sometimes there'd be days when people would come to me, and it was would be something like a very thing that I was going through at the time, and I would think, oh, what have I got to give them? You know, and. I would find it so beneficial afterwards because just by hearing them talk, it was actually, oh, and I'd give a bit of, um, I don't like to give advice, but I'd give some, you know, um, maybe you could try this or this. And then I'd think, oh, wow, yeah, listen to yourself, Kerry. But I, what I did, I was, I started reading stories of people that had come out the other side of really hard times because what I was desperately searching for, and this is why I started Stories of Hope, I knew people my age that had lost one parent, but I, I didn't, and my dad passed away six years ago now, but I didn't know people that had lost both parents and that had gone through the significant losses and the other situations that I'd been through. And it wasn't to say, oh, poor me, you know, I'm a victim, I've got the worst life in the world. But I just desperately wanted somebody who understood the level of pain that I was going through, and I couldn't find anyone. Uh, And so I thought to be able to, you know, I was journaling, I was doing all the self-care things myself, I was seeing a counsellor, and might I add, doing this sober. So doing going through all this type of of, of trauma um, without alcohol or anything like that where people usually use that to take the edge off mm-hmm. I was like I was clinging on to a cliff base by my fingernails just trying to hang on and so I started reading stories and that started to build gradually build my hope up because I would read stories of people that had been through worse than me, and I think they've come out the other side, you know, and they found hope, and these were their strategies, and that started to build up in me the hope that I too could, if, if it could happen for them, it could happen for me also. So you want to talk about the signs behind you and stories of hope, and what, and yeah, you just sort of talked about a bit about why why you've led into it, but maybe you want to talk about why you founded that, what it's about, what it does. So when I came to this situation in my life, this I hit the rock bottom oh. of Lady, uh, but then this was like another rock bottom after I'd lost, you know, all the family members above me and and my husband had also been diagnosed with an, an illness and he was very, very sick and I really didn't know what the future was. And I went into a really dark tunnel. I, I had like, second rock bottom and I didn't know how I was going to come out. And so one of the signs too of people that are struggling with mental health is when they check out of their regular activities. And usually that's a time, uh, and I know that we're both mental health first aid trainers, and usually that's a time where people should check in with a person. But because I'd been the person that was there for everyone else, Everyone always had this perception that I was coping really well and I hardly had a person contact me to see if I was okay in those six weeks. And that was a very soul-destroying time because I felt all alone and Mm. I dragged myself out and went to a women's conference and I heard three people get up and share their stories of coming out the other side of hard times and it was right then I actually had my own light bulb moment where I thought, wow, I looked at everything that I'd come out of in my life and I thought I have so many stories of hope to offer other people. 
And I'm also a real connector in the community and I knew so many people too that had been victorious over their situations as well. And I thought if we can join together, we can create a place where people that were like me feeling like they're in the middle of a trigger trauma tsunami can come and they can actually find solace and find hope Mm -hmm. and they can find connection. And so I started these monthly events for free for the community and I had a man and a woman share their stories of coming out the other side of hard times. I used everyday people, but the one criteria really was that they had come out the other side that they weren't still in a victim mode and that they actually had been victorious over their situation. And that ran for five, four, four and a half years until COVID struck. And out of that came two more book, two books. Um, there was there's volume one, Stories of Hope Australia, and this is volume two. And in both of these books, I share my story of addictions in the first one and my story of overcoming grief in the second one. And I have the stories of um, six men and six women in each book. And then when COVID hit, uh, we couldn't meet anymore. And the one thing that had been really pivotal in in helping me move forward and move out of my pain was having a purpose. And you often hear this, you know, it's a purpose and connection are the two things that are really vital for somebody who's struggling with mental health. And so I'd lost my purpose and I'd really hit the wall again. And I actually was thinking about drinking because I didn't know this time how I could pull myself out without my purpose Mm. and also desperately missing my family, my son and my brothers in Sydney. And so I started to find people on um, through LinkedIn and Facebook that had come out the other side of hard times and that I felt were really resilient. And I started interviewing people from around the world and I started sharing their stories, you know, on Facebook and everything so that other people in the world that felt really down and felt like they couldn't get through another day could be encouraged as well. And then in light of our men's mental health crisis, which was worsening through COVID and up here on the Sunshine Coast where I live, um, the suicide rate was 9% above the national average. I decided to dedicate this book to the men of this world. Mm. And I have a variety of ages from the age of um, 20 to 80. And they're 15 men who have been through all different things, but they all have a story of hope and victory to tell. That's fantastic. Um, before we go back to that, I just want to talk about the griefs. Uh, yeah. Grief, I think, is something I had a guest on last week who lost his mum to suicide, which is not which is a very traumatic thing. And the grief, I don't think we talk enough about grief in general. I think we go to a funeral and people think you're over it three days later or a week later and that's it. Um, people don't know how to deal with it. People don't know how to process it. And it can be very long-term uh, from, from my own understanding. So can I talk about grief strategies or some things that you found helped you? Yeah, and I firstly just want to say too, you know, Whenever I put a post up about grief, it's it doesn't get a lot of interaction. People are scared of that word. Yet it's something that we as humans, we we face every day when a relationship breaks down, there's grief. So people often put grief with death, but there's grief over so many different things in life, uh, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, uncertainty about tomorrow, loss of finances. 
And so I think if people can start to get a greater understanding that we walk through grief every day and when it happens, we need to find a way to deal with it because that grief grief turns into trauma. Uh, so some of the things that were strategies for me personally was, um, you know, I've got a faith. I, I spent a lot of time praying, reading uplifting books, um, even something like put, burning a candle that smelt nice. Um, that became something that appealed to my senses that made me feel good. Even, you know, just drinking coffee and sitting there and really thinking about the coffee and and enjoying every mouthful. Gratitude. Gratitude became very big for me um, after watching my mum in the palliative care ward for a year. That's mm-hmm. how I learned about gratitude. Um, I was in the hospital one day and I desperately needed sleep and just being able to find a cushion on the lounge and close my eyes for half an hour, I just became so grateful for that cushion and I atten- intentionally started to look for things to be grateful for because I was in such a terrible journey and I thought I need to look for whatever I can that's positive in this time because when we go through hard times, we can either do it the journey very badly or we can do it well. So gratitude became a massive part of my healing journey. Um, exercise was so vital for me. And I'm not, you know, I don't do the gym and everything, but that's really great for a lot of guys find that really helpful. But I walked by the beach and I would sit and I'd stare at the ocean. Staring at the colour blue, and we both got blue on today, um, actually does something amazing for the soul. And, and staring at the colour blue is very healing. It releases endorphins into our body, which makes us feel good. Um, eating the right food. When we're not eating the right food, it really um, impacts the way we think, getting enough sleep. So a lot of these things are just, and journaling was massive. So whatever I could to get pain out, and whatever I could find that appealed to my five senses that was positive, um, I would do that. And I stayed away from sad music. Okay. Awesome. And it's really interesting because often there's this fad at the moment, or it's moved to the 80s now, but six months ago every restaurant you went to was playing 70s music. Okay. And that was the most the time when I had the deepest depression. And I I can't listen to 70s music and I would literally be screaming to get out of the restaurant. So there's an example of when a trigger hits. Mm. I'd have to talk to myself and give myself a new perception. But staying away from things that you know are going to trigger you to knowing your triggers and then avoiding those things if you can. That's some good advice there. I was going to go into your Stories of Hope 3, Volume 3. What are some common things or common threads that you found out when you were doing the interviews uh, for, for the book series that um that were, let's say, interesting to you or things that maybe we should pay attention to more? Because you did mention this, the increased suicide rate um, up in, in your area. Yeah. And my second question was, do you think that's more because, I don't want to put a stereotype on people, but like, you know, more, more macho-y sort of blokes up in that area, let's say, po- opposed to other areas of the country? Or why do you think that was? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of study up here on the Sunshine Coast um, and th- it's been thought that 
there's a link to uh, trauma um, and post-traumatic stress in particular through the DNA of returned soldiers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so their children um, uh, have a pre-genetic disposition to post-traumatic stress because we have had a lot of younger suicides up here, of particularly of of men, of boys. You know, well, like men in sixteen to twenty or whatever. Um, but the common thread, I think, and my whole purpose for the book was uh, that as a counsellor, I sit and help people mop up the pain of the past. And often people don't seek help, especially guys, until the crap has really hit the fan and until life is a real mess. And there's so many situations where I have people sitting that before me that are so broken and I think, wow, you know, if only you'd sought help earlier, your life could be very different mm. and there wouldn't be as much pain to try and move past. And so I guess the common thread for me was because in everything I do, it's it's all about suicide prevention. Um, so I see myself as an interventionist. And everything that I've ever done is for early intervention and prevention. And I see this book as an early intervention tool because what I asked the guys to do was to be raw and real and they've really laid themselves emotionally bare on the pages. And that is to show other men that it's okay to share how you feel. Mm. And while other guys often don't reach out for a chat or anything like that, if they can read the stories of people that are expressing their emotions, um, they'll be able to identify with that in a non-threatening way. But a lot of these guys um, did things that they regretted as well. So some of the guys in the book, life happened to them and then the others, um, well, life happened, but then they made poor decisions. Uh, One guy is um, Australia's most notorious bank robber. He's in the book, John Killick. And his girlfriend hijacked a helicopter and landed it on the um, roof of maximum security prison and broke it. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So he's in the book. And the thing that really struck me about his story, when I read his story, um, I cried because he had the saddest uh, start to to life. You know, he was a good kid, but then he lived with a violent alcoholic father and his mum suicided when he was 17. And then he went out on the streets because he didn't want to live with his dad. And then an older guy tried to sexually assault him all within a 24-hour period. And so for survival, he started stealing to get money for food. Mm. And his life just went on from there. So at the age of 80, his uh, message now is that it's not too late to give back. Mm. And I just love that, you know, that somebody that's in the much later part of their life is still being able to find a purpose and and to be able to give back and send a message to all the younger guys that there is there's redemption after poor choices there's second chances and what do you think can be done from a a way, like mental health awareness is a thing now it's very well known but I don't think I What's think it's very health? mental health awareness is a thing obviously now but it's the, yeah. I think it's very surface level still yeah trying to get the bloke who will see maybe an ad or whatever it is or see something, but to get them to take action, as you would know, is very, very hard. What things or what else could be done to try and help 
more people, more men especially, take actually action and make a contact. Because that seems to be the hardest thing is actually, you know, in Melbourne, you have to go to a GP to get a referral to yeah. go to a site. And that, that can be very hard for people just to do it in itself. Yeah. So what, what do you think can be done to try and get more men to stop just looking and thinking about it and actually start taking action and doing well, I think, look, I think awareness, you know, I was giving a lot of thought to this because I saw, you know, the questions came through. I think the media lets men down big time because it doesn't show all aspects of a man. It just yeah. shows, you know, the, the rough and tough, I think, that doesn't show enough the emotional and gentle side of a guy, you know, and something if any men are listening out there, you know, their perception might be that women want the big macho men, you know, but often a lot of women I talk to, they want the, uh, the guy that is kind and in touch with their emotions. Mm. And so I think um, I think it's got to be on all of us. Um, there needs to be more awareness out there. I mean, we have apps that guys can go to if they don't want to talk to someone, but the studies show too that the intervention or somebody checking up on a guy that was suicidal has a massive um, impact on them not taking that action. Uh, so connection is, sorry, my battery's about, yeah. connection is uh, massive and the person that's struggling often won't go out and find the connection themselves. So I really think that this awareness has to be Massive in community. I think more people need to do courses like the mental health first aid course because the more of us in society that are aware of the signs, the more of us are going to reach out to the person next door, the person across the road, the person in our office where we might not have before. Mm. And the more people doing that, you know, if we have double the amount of people checking in on other people, um, chances are that person at least knows someone cares about them enough and they don't feel alone mm. uh, or, and also they might go and get help then. And from a government perspective, there's obviously a lot of money getting caught in at state and federal level because they want to promote it because it's something obviously that's important to a lot of people so they're going to promote that they're doing something about it. Where do you think the funding can go or should start going? Um, Needs to go to on the ground workers. This is the thing, you know. They they keep throwing money at it and putting it in this mental health bucket, but like I don't, I haven't seen any of it. I'm I'm on I'm on the ground work. I'm a counsellor. We don't get any government funding like psychologists or social workers do, and and we our work is just as as hard. You know, we don't maybe haven't studied for the textbook as much, but most of the counsellors are long term lived experience people. Mm. Which has a, ma a massive impact and benefit for people that are struggling. Um, I really don't know what the government's doing with the money. There's a lot of money in this one. Awareness about mental health, but nothing's actually being put into pools to actually for programs and stuff like that to actually address the underlying problems. And we need to address the underlying problems. And for men, their relationship breakdown, financial problems. They're the two massive triggers for guys for checking out. And But the thing is, you're not taught that at school, right? So you never taught financial literacy or basic, you know, as you said, relationship skills at all at a school level. Um, so what do you think could be done in regards to a funding from that level? Do you think more financial counselling support or more 
more just free counselling or what would, what would you like to see? I'd like to see the government supporting counsellors to be able to see people. I've had so many people contact me and say, do you do the mental health plan? Mm. And they are specifically often middle-aged guys who are struggling with addictions because for men, substance abuse disorders is the highest form of mental health problems in Australia. And they come to me and I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I can't access the mental health plan. So why is that the case? Is it just because it is, you need to be a quite qualified psychologist or what's the point? Why is it well, the, go- the way the government set it up, they don't, they have up to this point, they haven't given any credence to lived experience workers. Mm, they haven't. No. no just, they don't want the, they don't want announcement for like 6.5 million for something, but that's really it. And you know, out of billions, I think billions of dollars, whatever they're doing, there's like 6.5 million was allocated towards lived experience panel or something uh, that I saw. Yeah, and so um, there's if if there were if the counsellors that were reached out to were available and able to do the mental health plan, you would have triple the amount of people getting support. Well, it makes sense because there's a massive shortage of psychologists. Like you can't, people cannot get into one, and yet then if they've got to go to a counsellor and can't get the mental health plan, they might not be financially able to afford it. So then they're stuck, and you know they might rely on a hotline which then refers them. You know, the way all the, a lot of the major hotlines just a referral services to someone who might be busy as well. So yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Well, you you know you can get into. I actually had a guy come to me who's uh, had a marriage breakdown um, and really on the edge, and he said to me, "I'm glad that I've found somebody that's got some lived experience, and that I wasn't just sent to some 22 year old psychologist who knew nothing about life." That's important. People can get into psychologists that have just come out of uni, but if they're really struggling with a myriad of deep psychological problems and traumas, uh, I think the best people for them are going to be counsellors or psychologists who have actually got lived experience in life. I agree because there's an instant respect between you two. You know, know, if you don't, you know, if they're going to see a 23-year-old, 22-year-old who doesn't know, who hasn't had any real adversity that you'd know of. Yeah. There's no, there's instantly you're not going to have that same level of respect as they would for someone like yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, that I think also, um, I can't tell you, I've, I've actually reached out a few times to different people in my community and organizations about funding me to run a mental health first aid program for the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, never any support. Unfortunately, a lot of organisations don't share their funding at all. I've heard this common thing from a um, lady who runs Bipolar Australia when she reached out to Beyond Blue because they refer a lot of people to her, yet they gave her no, no time of day, unfortunately. Seems to be that the big big organisations or brands suck up everything. At I that think number. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. I think I know it is. <laughs> so it, yeah, is it's not it is. Yeah, let's let's just say it right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't care. I'll say, I'll say it a lot online. So it's all, yeah. but that's true. And they don't share the love. And then basically, you know, this, yeah. Like I give you an example, like your, your intervention with um, suicide, right? Whereas Beyond Blue, for example, says we are suicide prevention as well. But someone who's an on the ground person like yourself who has people who you're helping with, you can't get any funding. It's crazy. And I think you're a better service to use you than a hotline be Beyond Blue where they're just going to refer you to someone anyway. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> yeah, but as I'm saying, it doesn't make any sense. 
I know. And that's, look, I guess that's why I wrote the books because I thought, well, if if I can't get people to actually, if they can't come to me, um, and and I don't charge heaps, you know, but at least the book is is 25 bucks that's got heaps of stories. It's helped going out. And, you know, a lot of stories in a book can make a massive impact on one person. So that I thought that's one way that I can actually share what's going on with Stories of Hope and people can get a piece of what, you know, the magic that happens in the room and the hope um, without having to invest much money. And I've probably given away more books than I've sold. <laughs> yeah, but that's your purpose, you know what I mean? As you said, everyone yeah. needs a purpose and you're right. You're 100% on you, And that's your purpose, right? And that's yeah. what's giving you fulfilment and you're doing a good deed. You know, you're making the world a better place. Oh, well, you're doing, you know, you're doing what you can in regards to that, right? Not a lot yeah. of people do that. You know, where they have money motivation or whatever it is, but you're you've actually got purpose, which is which is the key. Yeah, I've got pe- purpose and people people motivation. And look, I've done a lot of extensive work with the homeless. Yeah, I read. I remember reading that in your bio. Yes, and that's six years or something. You've been last six years. Yeah, or, we, yeah. yeah, we we did that for six years, and so I guess I've I've seen people that uh that they're they and people that have come in and out of jail and stuff. I've seen people and worked with people that are as low they they've come to the lowest point that you can ever go in life. And often they don't have the money to actually pay for yep. anything, let alone an appointment. One hundred percent. So I've always, you know, I've never turned anyone away that needs help. Um because people's lives are so important to me and because I've suffered so much myself, you know, I know what 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 that's like and I, if I can help it, I don't want anybody that I come across ever check out because they feel like no one cares. Mm. And so it's a very personal passion of mine that everybody feels like they belong somewhere. Mm. That's great. And the, the annoying thing for me is that people would obviously, those people, people are very judgmental, right, you know, you've been to jail or... You know, yeah, someone's got an addiction or whatever, but they don't ever understand well, what made that person that way. So then they want to learn about the event or whatever it is. They then have an empathy of this person, but we're too surface level. We just judge people. You know, that person's got maybe, you know, whatever it is. Um, and as you would know from your experience, it, there's so much more to, to people beyond the surface level stuff where we judge them. So true. And I think there's so much still, so much stigma attached to people with addictions. And you just said there it. is absolutely. I mean, we're seeing all these things on Facebook now. You know, all these people that have been drug addicts and their pictures and how they are now and everything. But I think for the person that's not an an addict or alcoholic or hasn't been in that space, they still um, there's still a big level of judgment towards those of us who have. It's a lack of empathy and EQ. That's what it comes down to. You know, yeah. a lot of people who are past judgment and they've got no EQ, em- empathy, and maybe haven't had really much adversity uh, in their own circumstances. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, um, the people that have really struggled and been t- hit rock bottom, they're, they're the people that can really make a difference, a massive difference in other people's lives, you know, because they've had the lived experience of of hitting rock bottom and, and they've got the massive story of hope to tell. Absolutely. So do you want to maybe talk about where can people find out more about you, you Kerry, and your books and what you do? Yes. Yeah, so um, if you head to www.storiesofhope.com.au, um, that's all about my stories of hope. And I also have a website for my counselling and speaking. 
www.empowerlifesolutions.com.au. Awesome, Kerry. I'll put the links in the description. Um, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate all your insights and how open and honest and transparent you've been. Um, good luck is what you do. It's fantastic that, you know, you obviously give back and you're doing something really beneficial for a lot of people in your community. So well done. And um, thank you very much for your time, Kerry. I really appreciate it. Thanks heaps, Joel. So a big thank you to Kerry Atherton for coming on and make sure you check out in the show description all the links to everything she does and what I've just you know what a fantastic person to share all that about her and actually help people in the field now really really rewarding for her obviously and a lot of people get out of it and and she goes around uh, with her stories of hope forum and her books and does a lot of bloody good work to the community and these are people who you don't really hear about too often and that's why it's a really good um, little thing I can do or at least on this platform to sort of acknowledge the great work that she does um, it's just a fantastic thing and what a lovely person as well so if you want to learn more about Carrie, please make sure you check out the show notes and you can support her by checking out her book and, and the counselling and all that different stuff as well and until next week if you did enjoy the episode please make sure to leave a review let me know or become a guest on livedexperiencepodcast.com we'd love to share your story as well until next episode I hope you have a great week <laughs>